nearing the end of our series on uh, Genesis, uh, and we're coming almost to the end of our time with Jacob. Uh, next, starting from next week, we're going to finish the series with a, a three-part mini-series on the life of uh, Joseph, and um, it's going to be brilliant. Uh, David Coffey is preaching each morning, and uh, a mixture, I think, of Emily and myself are doing the evenings, and it promises to be an excellent series. I've heard David preach this at a minister's conference, or parts of it, and it was soul food, food for my soul. It was beautiful, and he readily agreed to give up three solid Sundays, three consecutive Sundays, to... to uh, tell us the story with all its ups and downs and all its God movement of of Jacob. So I think the best way to get the most out of it is this week and next week and the following week, if you can, to read through uh, that, that, that whole passage. It's from 35 to the end of Genesis. Uh, So 15 chapters, five chapters or so a week uh, would be brilliant. Real soul food. And it would give us the best possible start uh, as David preaches to us. Because obviously David can't preach uh, 15 chapters in three weeks. So he's going to allude to different bits. And the more we know that story, the richer uh, it will be for us. And, And the more able, actually, God will be able to speak into our hearts uh, so please, if you can, uh, over the next three weeks, five, five chapters a week. Uh, so you could just do a chapter a day, if you like, and have a, a day off. Uh, Genesis, the end of Genesis. Uh, where we are in our story is Jacob. Jacob has wrestled with God. That's where we left him last week. He'd wrestled with God, and God had changed his name to Israel. You remember he was fearful about meeting his brother Esau, well, he needn't have worried. God was with him. And it went, humanly speaking, very well with Esau. There was a reconciliation, there was love and there was gift giving. And Esau invited Jacob home. That's what God had said, I want you to go home to the land of your fathers. Now, remember the land of his fathers is the area around Mamre. Uh, this oak in Canaan, this area called Mamre, uh, and Bethel, just there. And that's where God had called him to go. But Jacob was incredibly fearful of his brother. And when his brother said, let me give you an armed escort home, Jacob turned it down. He thought there might be some kind of duplicity here and refused any help. And he said, I'll catch up with you at home a bit later. And he didn't go home. He said, I'll go home with you. I'll be there in a bit. Instead, he went a different way. And on the borders of Canaan, he settled. We'll pick up the story in chapter 33. Don't don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry, James, at all. Uh, It won't come up on the screen, but James will catch up with us as we get to chapter 34. So 33 Verse 18. Just don't worry, James. It's only a few verses. Chapter 33, verse 18. Thereafter, Jacob came 
from Padan Amran. He arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and he called it El Elchoi Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had born to the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. And he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they had heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has set his heart on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride. And the gift I am pleased, I am, sorry, I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only. That you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we will take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and to his son Shechem. 
the young man who was the most honoured of all his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak with their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. They can marry our daughters and we can marry theirs. But the men will consent to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dana's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? <clears throat> Tim's preaching this evening. I, uh, I sent a text to Tim at the beginning of the week and said, I've just read through our passage. Uh, perhaps we ought to talk about it. And he wrote back and he said, It is a bit of a horror, isn't it? It really is. But it's God's work. Useful for teaching, training, rebuking, and leading us to him. So let's close our eyes and pray. You know, I've got two choices. I can say, look, rape's wrong, and so is genocide. Let's go home and enjoy the sun. Or I can say, let's try and delve into it. So let's delve into it. Father, would you help us as we read your word to be changed and transformed by it. Lord, we believe your word. We believe every word of it. We come and want to sit under it. We honour it as your truth given to us. We don't want to distort it to fit our own agendas, but we want to live it. We want to understand it. We want it to be alive in us. We want to give ourselves to the word and the word to have us. I have hidden your word in my heart 
David says. And we too want to do that. So would you come, would you equip us as hearers, listeners, speakers, would you help every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. I've called the sermon Shame, Shame, Shame. And there are at least four places that we see deep shame. The first shame actually comes with Jacob, this character who is as good as he is bad. Uh, One week he's good, one week he's bad. One week he's good, one week he's bad. He's a funny but deeply comforting character to us because he gets things wrong. And I find comfort in that. And here we see the first shame. God has called him to go home, to go back to the land of his fathers, back to Bethel. And he hasn't. You know what he's done? He's compromised. He's compromised. Sometimes this word compromise is a good word. You know, we long for the people in Egypt to compromise, don't we? We long for the, 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 the Muslim Brotherhood and, and the, the, the army to come together and compromise. That would be great. The people, the rebels in Syria and the government in Syria, we would love for them to come together and compromise. To meet one another halfway. That's really what it means. Come together halfway in compromise. And and that's beautiful. And there are times when we all have to compromise with other people. In marriage, in friendships, at work, there is a degree of beautiful, loving, marvellous compromise. It's nothing so debilitating and hopeless as being around people or around someone or in a situation where there can be no compromise. That's a good side of compromise, but there is a bad side of compromise. And that's when we compromise ourselves, when we compromise our faith, when we go halfway, but we don't follow through. That's compromise. We go halfway with the world. And we meet in the middle with the world. And that's terrible compromise. And we see that with Jacob here. God's called him to go home. And he compromises. He's halfway home. He's on the edge of Canaan. And there he sets up his tent. There he buys some land. He's planning on staying, you see. That's what the hundred pieces of silver ring any bells. That's what the hundred pieces of silver means. He's buying into this place called Shechem, named after the ruler of this town's son. Or his son, the most honourable and most beautiful and the fairest of all his family, is named after the town. We, d- we don't know. And here, Jacob compromises. Here's God's voice. He goes halfway. Whoa, that's us right there, isn't it? That's us right there. Hear God's voice and go halfway. I love what Keith Green says, his song, No Compromise. Compromise. Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words and no white lies. No token prayers. No compromise. 
I love that. But Jacob adds shame on shame here. Because Jacob not only doesn't do what God says, he turns around to everyone and says, oh, yeah, but I am. And he builds an altar there and he gives it a grand name. El Elhoi Israel. Which I hope you appreciate that, put a lot into that. Which means the Lord God is mighty. He hasn't done what God said. And yet he's asking God to sanctify it. He's asking God to bless it. We often do that. We often do what suits us. And we tell everyone else around us, it's what God has called me to do. God told me to do this. Really? Did he really tell you to do that? Compromise. Shame, shame, shame. The next shame is Dinah. Poor Dinah. There she is living next to this town and she goes out to meet the women of the town. We don't know if there are any other girls, any other daughters. We don't know. We assume maybe not. And here she goes for some female company and she goes into the town. She should be safe. But she's not. Because the sun, this rich young thing, this glamorous, glorious, dapper young king, this young prince, sorry, son of the king of the town, sees her. He wants her. He takes her. He violates her. Shame. 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 To me, there are echoes here of Eve in the garden. She sees the apple. She wants the apple. She likes the apple. She takes the apple. She and all humanity are violated. Shame, shame, shame. Sin often begins with the eyes. And then the will, our desire, and we do. And that's what happens to her. But it, it has an odd connotation. Our English, our Anglophiled NIVs say she was raped. Uh, other uh, NIVs, New International Version Bibles, will say he violated her. Most texts, the word here is not rape, it is violated. Because something's going on that we can't get to the bottom of. They seem, or at least he does, to be very much in love. He falls in love with her. He desires her. He delights in her. He wants to marry her. But what gets me, what really makes me mad in this passage, is poor Dinah is quiet. Nobody seems to ask her what she wants. She is taken against her will, we assume. She is used and now this young fella wants to marry her. And he takes her for his own. And she is silent. No one says, what would you like? She just becomes a thing. So wrong. She's silent. We hear what happens, but she is silent. She's not the only one who's silent. God is too. 
from verse 1 of chapter 34 to the final verse of chapter 34, God is not mentioned. Jacob sets up this altar with a great name, Eholim El Israel. The Lord God is mighty. But then God is missing from the picture. And it all turns chaotic. And that's true. When God is missing, when God is out of the picture, when God is neglected, overlooked by us, things turn to dust. Things get chaotic. Life falls apart. And there, here, in Shechem, it does. God is silent. But he's not the only one who's silent. Dinah's silent. God is silent. But Jacob's silent. Did you notice that? When Jacob heard that his daughter Dana had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he kept quiet about it until they came home. He kept quiet. He's silent to his daughter who has been violated. Where's the father there? Where are the words of comfort? Where is the arm of embrace? Where is the strength of support? He keeps quiet. But not only does he keep quiet to dinner, but he keeps quiet to God. There's no cry to heaven. What has happened? Lord, where are you? Come, Lord, come. Nothing. Just silent. What would David have done? He'd have cried out, King David. Why are you so far from saving me? Where are you? What would Daniel have done? I will not stop praying, O king. Even if you chop off my head, stick me with the lions, or throw me in a furnace. What would Moses have done? He'd have cried out to heaven. Dinah's quiet. God is quiet. Jacob is quiet. Shame, shame, shame. Well, this is a terrible thing. Rape is never excusable. This violation is horrendous. It is a horror. And Hamor and Shechem realize that. And so they come to Jacob. They want to compromise in what might perhaps be the best possible way. They go to them. They say, can we talk? Can we thrash this out together? They want to compromise. There doesn't need to be war. And my son... Hamor says, has set his heart on Dinah. And then I think this is an incredibly brave thing from our anti-hero Shechem. He said, verse 11, Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes 
And I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like. And I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. So he has acted shamefully. But he seems to be wanting to do something about it. What he has done is inexcusable. But he seems to want to put things right. Well, the brothers turn up on the scene. And this is our next shame. Because they push Jacob out the way. And they take over the negotiations. Verse 13, we're told... Because their sister, Dinah, had been defiled. She had made love, or she was raped. She had had sex with an outsider. And had therefore been defiled. We see this word three times in the passage. In in verse 5, verse 13 here, and later in verse 27. She's been defiled. And because she's been defiled, we're told, they replied deceitfully. You've treated our sister badly. We are going to treat you badly. So they lie and they concoct a scheme. And what a scheme it is. We can't join with you. You're not circumcised. We will join with you. You can have our sister. You can have our daughters. You can have our herds, and we will intermarry, we'll share, we'll buy. But you must first become circumcised. What a plan. This was God's symbol of blessing. This was God's symbol of love. Like a wedding ring for us. Circumcision was that outward symbol of the inward truth that God was their Father. That they belonged to Him And he belonged to them. And this symbol of blessing, they turn and make it a symbol of death. Because they know that these men will be weak as they recover. Don't need to go into the details of that, do I? We understand. They're going to be weak. And while they're weak, no antiseptic, no Derriford Hospital, no anaesthetists, Nobody to help them. While they're weak, three days later, Simeon and Levi go in and kill every one of them. I suppose fathers, mothers, there's a little bit of that we can understand, I suppose. That desire for revenge, that desire to put things right. But this ain't putting things right. This is genocide. This is 300 odd men, we think, who were killed that day. Shame, shame, shame. Well, what a passage to preach on. Pick the bones out of that. What does it tell us of God's love? 
What does it tell us of our great God? What do we make of a passage like this? I think it shows us a number of things. When we leave God out, we are in big trouble. We take matters into our own hands. We compromise. We settle where we want to settle. We do what we want to do without a by your leave to God. And that's what we do again and again and again. And when we do, we're in trouble. Jacob should have cried out to God, and so should we. When trouble comes, he wants to hear. We're called not to complain, but we can complain to him. He invites it. Lay your burdens on me, Jesus would say to us. Lay your burdens on me. They don't cry out to him. Jacob doesn't cry out to him. Not even the brothers cry out to him. David will. When things go wrong for David, this is his kind of prayer. And I like it. Crush the teeth in their mouths, Lord. That's nice. You might not like it. But it's immediately, it's in the Bible. Psalm 3. It takes it out of me. It takes it away from me acting and puts it firmly on God's lap. Crush the teeth in their mouths, Lord. And maybe, just maybe as we interact with God, He'll start to turn our hearts. As we pray for people that have hurt us, people that have betrayed us, people who have crushed us, as we pray for them day in, day out, God changes our hearts and he changes us. In his mercy, we get to see where we're wrong. In his mercy, he changes us. And what he does with the other person, well, that's down to him. I have a great friend who was bitterly hurt and every day prayed and an amazing thing happened in a prayer meeting. Uh, nobody knew. And in a prayer meeting on the 30th day or thereabouts, this person was praying and praying for these people that had hurt them. And someone came to them and said, your prayers have been heard. How about that? If you've been hurt, if you've been betrayed, it's probably the hardest thing to do. But don't take matters into your own hands. How about praying for them? And praying for them for a week. Or two weeks or a month. And see what God will do to you and them. So when we leave God out, we're in trouble, number one. Number two. God shows us his love in this passage by law. What do I mean by that? Well, there's one thing this passage is, it's God absent. Second thing this passage is, it's lawless. That woman, Dinah, should be allowed to walk in freedom. She shouldn't have been pounced upon. She's not a thing for someone else to have their way with. 
She was made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Male and female, he made them. In God's image. Genesis 1, 27. She should have been free. And she wasn't. Because lawlessness was rife. Lawlessness was rife with the brothers too. You see, when God gives his law, this is what he said. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now that might sound barbaric. But actually, it's a step up from this, from revenge. To be lawful, Shechem was at fault. Shechem needed to pay. It was Shechem whose life should have been forfeit. But instead, the boys are lawless. And they take matters into their own hands. And they kill every man. Genocide. And they steal everything in the town. Theft. This is awful. And don't say to me they didn't know that I was wrong. Because when God spoke to Noah, God said, all life is sacred. Whoever takes a life will be answerable to me. It's God. All life. It's lawless. Absolute law. You know, one of God's great gifts to us is the law. David says, I delight in your law. Your law is honey to my lips. I treasure your law in my heart. David loved the law. Why? Aren't we free from the law, Andy? Well, yeah, we are. Praise God. We are free from the law. But the law is a wonderful thing. In theology, there are three reasons why we have the law. The first one is to show us right from wrong, outside of ourselves, because we are so good at invite, of inventing our own rules based on our own preferences. We've dealt with this before. We decide something's okay, so it becomes okay. But God gives us a law which is outside of us. It's a different thing. To make laws ourselves is like trying to anchor a ship by throwing the anchor on, on, the, on the deck. Can't do it. You need to put it out of it onto something else. And we need a law that is outside ourselves. And so that law comes from God and it tells us that there is right and wrong. And it tells us what the punishment for things that are wrong is. This is good. You see, if the boys had done that, they wouldn't have killed a whole town. They would have held Shechem responsible for what he did. They would have asked their sister. They would have got to the bottom of it. But they didn't. So the law is good because it tells us right from wrong. And in the same way, this is called the punitive purpose of the law. In the same way, it tells us that we've all broken it. Not one of us in this room has kept all the law. And so it throws us on God's mercy. We come to God and we say, we need you. I am not righteous in and of myself. So the law is beautiful because it drives us to God. Say, I'm not perfect. I am not perfect. Punitive aspect of the law. Then there is this restraining principle of the law. The, the law stops us. I might hate my next door neighbor. I don't. But I might hate them. And, and so I want to kill them. But I don't because I know Chief Inspector Barnaby 
will find me out. So I don't. It restrains me. I might want to steal the offering because I'm a bit hard up this week. I'm not. But I might want to steal the offering. But I won't because I'll get caught and I'll lose my job. There is a restraining aspect to the law. So it keeps us within bounds. The trouble is, and this is what Paul says, it can't change us. It's impotent in that it doesn't bring life. Only the Holy Spirit brings life because there's a day coming when the external law will become eternal, internal, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which is now. Be written on your hearts instead of tablets of stone. But the law is good because it restrains. So unbelievers are restrained by the law. People who don't come to church, there are very good ones because they keep the law. And so the law is important for society to work. Society in Shechem didn't work because it was lawless. Society works by and large because of law. So David says it's my delight. But there's a third reason why the law is beautiful and David's delight. Because it shows us God. It shows us the things God loves and the things God hates. God hates it when people are taken advantage of. God hates it when people are put down. God hates it when people are killed, hurt, maimed, raped, violated. He hates it. God hates it when your property is stolen. God hates it. God hates it when you're put down, teared down. God hates it. So the law is there to protect all of us. The weak from the strong. It is there. And it's beautiful because it's not survival of the fittest. It's God's law. So David says, I delight in it. We're set free from it, thankfully, by Jesus. We're dead to it. That's a whole other sermon. But it is still a delight. And Jesus says, not one bit of it will ever pass away. It's eternal. Because it's good. So God shows us his love by giving us his law. And we don't see it there. Another thing that we do, I think this passage teaches us, is that we blame God when things go wrong. Again and again and again, we want to say, God, why have you done this? Well, that's better than Jacob did. But as you read that, you can see it's not God. God didn't do it. It was sinful people. It was people who made choice after choice after choice that was bad. Starting with Jacob, all the way through. Poor choices. Bad decisions. You know the Christian life is lived under the power of the Holy Spirit through the will. We decide to follow. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we decide to follow. Secret of the Christian life. Do what he says. Thirdly, it shows you that even set apart people get things wrong. Big time. Set apart people like Jacob and Levi get things wrong. Set apart people who have met God like Jacob get things wrong. So go easy on yourselves when you get things wrong. Go easy. And go easy on one another when they get things wrong. Because even Jacob gets things wrong. What about God? Is there actually any hope? Andy Caldwell, is there any hope in this passage at all? Answer, not in this one. 
But we don't have to read far before we do find some. I wonder, Simon, if you can stick it up for me. Uh, Chapter 35, verse 1. If you've got your Bible in front of you, it's just the next line. Then God said to Jacob. That makes my hair stand on edge. Then God said to Jacob, isn't that beautiful? After all this chaos, after all this pain, God steps in. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel. Says it again. He said it in 33. Now he's saying again, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God. I love this book because it shows us a God who never gives up on us. It's interesting that the word that Shechem uses uh, to describe his love is this. It's the Hebrew word, hisk, H-S-Q, hisk. And it's translated, set his heart on, hisk. Set his heart on. So Hamor comes. My son has hissed your daughter. He set his heart on her. As far as I can find out, that word negatively, as here, is only used once in the entire Bible. But time after time after time after time, it's used of God to his people. I have set my heart on on you. So he pursues us and he woos us and he chases us and he hunts us and he grabs hold of us and he says, I am for you. He comes to us. Sorry if I'm scaring you in the front row. Showering you in the front row. But I come to you. says, I've set my heart on you. Whew. I don't want to equate his love to Shechem's love. But there's passion. There's desire. So much so that he gives his son. Then God said. I don't know what chaos you're facing. I don't know what time Turmoil is going on. But in this moment, God wants to speak to you. Let's pray. Then God said. I thank you, Father, that you are God of the second chance, third chance, fourth chance, 77 times seven chance. We praise you that you still speak to men and women who get things wrong, to men and women who stuff up, to men and women who don't cry out, who go halfway, who compromise. 
that you speak and you come. And Lord, this morning, this afternoon, we take that ball of success and failure, which is us, and we thrust it into your hands. And say, have your way. Speak, and we will listen. Direct, and we will go. In Jesus' name, amen.